This episode is sponsored by Overcast, a better podcast app than whatever you're using right now. Unless it's Overcast. Get Overcast for free on the App Store. Hello and welcome to Blurry Photos. I'm your host, David Flora. Stecco's off on adventures right now, and due to scheduling, we couldn't work out a dual recording for this episode, but I won't be flying completely solo tonight, because I got a great interview with a young man who is very active in the Fortean research field, Mr. Colin Schneider. Dave and I actually met Colin a couple years back when we did a presentation at a Mensa conference, and then I ran into him down at the Mothman Festival and found out what all he'd been up to since we'd met him, which, as it turns out, has been a lot. And he gave a great presentation, which I enjoyed, and agreed to do an interview with me. So I'm very happy to share that with you all for this episode, and I hope you enjoy it. Quick reminder for you, don't forget when you get a chance to head over to Apple Podcasts or iTunes or whatever the kids are calling it these days. Give us a five-star review, maybe some words on what you enjoy. Help us be more visible on there. And if you haven't yet, like our Facebook page, Blurry Photos Podcast, and follow us on Twitter, Blurry underscore photos. Help us get the good word out there. And spread our corrupt, tainted message to all in the land. <laughs> uh. And now with the business handled, please enjoy my interview with Colin Schneider. My guest tonight is Colin Schneider. Colin has been exploring the unexplained since the ripe old age of 13, and now at the riper age of 17, he is one of the youngest Fortean researchers out there. Already, he's making a name for himself in the world of Fortiana, particularly cryptozoology research, and he's a frequent attendee and speaker at paranormal events and conferences around Ohio and Pennsylvania. He's a regional representative for the Center for Fortian Zoology and the host of the Crypto Kid radio show on the WCJV Digital Broadcasting Network. And you can catch his show every Monday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time at WCJVRadio.com. We first met at a Mensa conference back in 2015, and I was fortunate enough to get to attend a lecture he gave at the Mothman Festival down in Point Pleasant earlier this year. I'm excited to talk about your research. Colin, thanks for coming on to talk to me tonight. Uh, Definitely. Um, I'm a longtime listener, so thanks for uh, having me on. I love the show. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's my pleasure to have you on, Colin. And uh, uh, after that lecture, I um, we we talked a little bit, and I wish we had gotten to to talk more. I was going to get you on a recording uh, while I was down there, and then it just so happened that um, I, I had gotten a ticket to that TNT tour, and it was pulling out right right about when your lecture ended, and I had to run and jump on the bus for that. But I, I thoroughly enjoyed that lecture, uh, and uh, I think you got a, a pretty good response there from it. Oh, I appreciate the kind words, and I uh, I think I did too. Um, the talk is kind of accumulation of research I've been uh, doing for several years now, and I'm really proud of uh, where it is, and I think it's my favorite talk that I've given. Yeah, it was great, and a uh, lot of beasts and baddies that I hadn't uh, heard of, some, some that we actually have covered uh, on our show and some of the miscryptids and stuff like that. But uh, I want to get into that a little bit later, but uh, I want to I get to know about uh, you a little bit first. So 
did I miss anything in the intro? Is there anything that you want to throw out there for our listeners that uh, uh, you want to attack on to it? Well, I've been interested in this subject since I was very little. Scooby-Doo, Goosebumps, and a couple other shows and books like that really got me really interested in monsters. And I've always, always been fascinated by animals. So cryptozoology is really the perfect combination of the two. Mm -hmm. I first really started getting extremely into this uh, after um, I went to the International Cryptozoology Museum in uh, 2013. And I got to meet Lauren Coleman, who's kind of like the cryptozoologist um, who had been a childhood hero of mine for years. And I was walking out. We were on vacation in Maine. And this was our first stop the first day we were in Maine of a two-week vacation. And I remember walking out with a stack of books from the gift shop, absolutely no spending money left for the vacation, uh, thinking, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. I want to be a monster hunter. And I remember sitting in the car, driving to our little cottage that we were renting, uh, thinking, I don't want to wait until I'm, you know, in my thirties, uh, with a job and everything. I want to do this now. Uh, and so it really just started kind of going in the back of my head as to how I can go about researching this stuff now and be taken seriously because I knew it would be difficult to do so. Mm-hmm. And I, I think I've done a good job, <laughs> uh, being 17 and, uh, being able to speak at places like the Mothman festival, uh, the recent cryptid con in Kentucky. I've been really lucky with some of the, uh, opportunities I've been given and some of the people I've, uh, met along the way. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. And uh, I'm curious to know if you're planning on, obviously, I, I think you probably are, but if, if you're planning on going to school for this and what you might potentially get a degree in to help you as a burgeoning cryptozoologist. That that question comes up in interviews a lot more often than I honestly expected. Uh, <laughs> I, I have no problem with the question. It's just I didn't think about well, people are going to want to know where I'm going to go to college and what I'm going to do. Uh, I'm torn right now between uh, wildlife conservation and management and uh, zoology. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure which one I'm going to go with. Uh, I attend a uh, STEM high school, and part of the curriculum is very focused on uh, getting us to figure out what we want to do through on uh hands-on interactions with actual careers, um, working in the field with uh, professionals and that type of thing. And I have been uh, working on setting up different job shadows and stuff to learn uh, more about some of these uh, aspects of science to really figure out which I want to um, do for the rest of my life. Yeah. And while keeping in consideration, which might help me in the field of cryptozoology uh, as well, because I want to keep doing this for the rest of my life, but I also want to uh, work in mainstream science. Okay, yeah, and with the conservation or or just uh, zoology in general, would this would the cryptozoology then be kind of like uh, ancillary to to a, to a career that you might have, or or maybe haven't gotten that far yet to to know? I think it'll really. It's definitely going to be involved in my life, but I'm not sure what place it's going to be. Um, I definitely want it to stay 
as a larger part of my life and my career, but I don't know how much time I'm going to be able to dedicate to working in the field of cryptozoology. Um, and I think that'll be something I figure out as I move into my career. Sure, sure. And I, that's probably why the question keeps coming up, because it seems <laughs> like the the obvious next step for you. Um, and, you know, I, I think people are probably uh, excited for you and, and want to know, you know, where uh, where your, your path's going to take you, which, how do you know <laughs> at right. this point, right? <laughs> These are kind of big questions to be asking. And <laughs> I don't, I don't mean to put you on the spot with, um, Hey, how do you think your life's going to be? <laughs> <laughs> oh no, it's so. <laughs> fine. I've doing interviews like this. I've kind of come to expect it. So I've got some answer answers prepared. Well, that's good. That's a, that's a step in the right direction. At least. <laughs> I mean, it, it's a good thing to know you know, what you love and what you'd like to do when you're uh, uh, that age, uh, but because it helps you in picking the next step. But at the same time, and I'm remembering back to, you know, my thought process um, because I chose theater and uh, it was like, well, this is, this is hopefully going to open up doors to, to other things. And, you know, I can do what I like and what I maybe hopefully am good at. But um, ultimately, I mean, it's just sort of like you're still kind of figuring it out and, and it's kind of hard to answer a question like, well, where is this path going to take you and how is that going to make you, you know, a uh, uh, functioning adult? And like, <laughs> But anyway, so so good on you for, you know, figuring out at least what you're passionate about. And I, I'm wondering why uh, cryptozoology in particular? Is it it's just, is it that love of, of the monsters and the animals, like you said, that, that cross between them or is there something else besides uh let's say paranormal and ghosts or uh ufology or you know something like that in the Fortean um realm well i think that the idea that um you know monsters or certain monsters might be animals that we just haven't discovered yet as most you know uh cryptozoology shows kind of postulate Really, I think that was what drew me to the subject. But what kept me there was the idea that there are mysteries still in the animal kingdom. Mm-hmm. I am one of the weird kids uh, that will sit and read an encyclopedia or a nonfiction book describing the habits of such and such obscure reptile or whatever instead of reading fiction. Uh, or, you know, uh, other watching TV, playing video games. I enjoy all that stuff, but really what drives me is wanting to learn. And I think the field of cryptozoology, at least the way that Ivan Sanderson and Bernard Huvelmans and uh, Lauren Coleman look at it, is from the perspective of these are animals that haven't been discovered yet and they if they exist we need to discover them to be able to help them and protect them and learn more about the animal kingdom in general and that's what really interests me i'm also more interested within cryptozoology in the more obscure things the uh almost more regular of the cryptids uh you know Loch Ness Monster and uh, Bigfoot and Mothman and the Chupacabra to an extent are very 
popular and they're also very, very weird if you think about them. Mm-hmm. And there's so many people that are into those. I think that's fine, but I'm more interested in, you know, the stories of large cats where they shouldn't be or, uh, yeah. strange looking dogs or, um, uh, larger reptiles. Um, I've been uh, working with a friend of mine on uh, researching a case of a monitor lizard that was supposedly inhabiting a uh, dump for uh, a year or two down in Kentucky. Uh, and it's, it's those type of almost more normal creatures and ideas that um, really keep me in the field of cryptozoology mm-hmm. uh, because they're so close to animals we already know about, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah, totally. It also makes me wonder just in, well, in in our experience in learning about these, a lot of stuff coincides a lot with uh, folklore and uh, cultural beliefs and stuff. I wonder if, if anything uh, in anthropology or cultural studies might uh, interest you if not as a uh, as a main focus, maybe like a, a minor that you might take in school or something, has it? Have you thought about doing anything like that, or do you want to keep it uh, mainly the zoological science aspect? Um, well, for the longest time, I was looking at the folklore of these things more than anything else because. Um, At the time, my perspective was, if you look at the folklore and the cultural aspects of it, the anthropology of these things, it doesn't really matter whether or not they exist because they have impact. Um, They matter. Uh, You know, Bigfoot is the best example. The the idea of Bigfoot is literally everywhere Um, from cooler companies to uh beef jerky um <laughs> to all kinds of stuff right and uh i think that's fascinating but i keep coming back to um you know physical science uh, biological science the the animals i've always just been fascinated by animals i used to um when i was very little i had this big fish tank that i had uh separated uh different areas in and i used to put toads in one area and garter snakes that i caught in the garden uh, in another area and um some other animals that i just happened to catch when i was playing outside and i used to study them and watch what they did and i i don't think that i'd be happy or as happy uh if i didn't uh focus on the animal side of it mm-hmm. that isn't to say that i don't um include the folklore I certainly do. Um, several of my articles have been focusing on uh, looking that uh, looking at uh, some of the folklore behind these creatures and how it can connect to other folklore that has existed, especially concerning uh, fairy lore, which I found some interesting connections between uh, some of these creatures. Yeah, but again, I keep I keep just going back to the animals and the the zoological perspective. And, uh, I think that, uh, if I can, um, have a good grasp and understanding of science, as well as the folklore behind these mysteries and, um, just these mysteries in general, I think that, um, it, it'll make me a better cryptozoologist. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. I'm wondering if, um, down the line, 
are are you thinking of uh, uh, and and please you know if if you haven't gotten this far in thinking please let me know I don't want to <laughs> on the spot but um, have you thought about uh, what you want to do with this uh, uh, this research are you you going to write a book or make film or are you keep doing the lecture circuits or all three or none of them I've published several articles about these um, things but the thing is I kind of. Uh, started looking into this and in the middle of the initial research, I decided to write up a couple articles and put them out. So, uh, between now and uh, between when the articles came out and my thinking now Mm -hmm. it's complete polar opposite. So I'm going to have to backtrack a bit and kind of fix, uh, some of the things I said in my previous articles, but I am working on a book. And if I stay on track, uh, with writing it it should have its second draft uh probably final draft finished and edited by the end of january wow and i've been talking to several different publishers about uh publishing the book that's awesome um so i want to have it out by uh i want it to be out by september of next year if possible because that's when the lectures start again that's great you're really on top of it. <laughs> I, I'm not surprised because look what you've accomplished already. But uh, I mean, that's great for you. I'm I'm uh, I'm happy to hear that. Well, I've always wanted to write a book. I've always enjoyed writing, but um, more nonfiction writing than uh, stories. And it's always been a goal of mine to do a uh, book on something uh, cryptozoological. Uh huh. But I think part of the problem is I'm I'm a stickler for uh, accurate information and mm. uh, getting the right perspective uh, and staying balanced. Right. So it's taken me like three times longer than it should have. Um, but I think it's going to be a better book for it once it's out. It's going to be three times writer than <laughs> it should be. <laughs> No, I I am with you. I agree a hundred percent. And that's this episode is going to come out. After our 200th episode, which I have put off because I am uh, researching it pretty in depth and I want to, you know, get all the information uh, out there and I want to get all the information correct. And that's what um, we usually strive for here is to get the the accurate stuff out there. And, you know, I I am um, always just kind of embarrassed and aghast when someone's like, that's that's not what that thing looked like and that's not what you know this person said and that's not where this site's located and i'm like oh no what have i done <laughs> i've done a disservice to the world because <laughs> that's one of the things uh, uh you know in starting this and and this is me um empathizing with you one of the reasons i started the podcast is um to get misinformation out of the world or at least you know beat it down uh, and make sure that uh, people have the real story behind stuff. And so it's it's good to hear someone, uh, especially you know when when you're up and coming and want to do the same thing. Uh, it's it's good to hear instead of someone who's just like, well, there's a there's an interdimensional being that's harassing people. Here are all my books on it that are you know twenty dollars each. <laughs> <laughs> Staying balanced and making sure that you at least address all possible um, physical explanations is one of my biggest pet peeves in the field because um, no one really does it. 
Mm-hmm. And because I'm younger and because I am doing it and because I point it out when people aren't doing it, I've um, in some circles kind of gotten the reputation of I'm one of the new kids that thinks he's right and everyone else is wrong. Hmm. And I try not to, you know, act that way. I try not to, um, you know, show myself as that type of person. Right. But I definitely do point it out if, you know, your logic is flawed or if there is another explanation that you um, didn't really address or um, just didn't have at all mm-hmm. um, brought up. I, I think it's, uh, while I don't discredit the possibility, I think that it's a bit of a leap to go from uh, Bigfoot sightings to interdimensional beings. Right. And uh, even though the the, uh, the 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 camps are pretty divided, I, I try to stay in the middle and yeah. it, it can irritate both camps, to be honest. That's that's the tough part, you know, that that it's a it's a fine line to walk. And uh, I say that from experience as well, because we've had uh, people who we who we've asked to interview say, no, I don't I don't want to. Uh, you know, go on, a, well, first of all, a comedy podcast. And it's like, well, obviously you're a great researcher if that's what you think we are. But like people don't want to go on and, you know, in their minds, they, they'd be ridiculed or just plain out debunked because like you said, we uh, try to walk the same line of pointing out the flaws, pointing out the information that is, you know, oftentimes left out which is important and kind of debases the whole argument. But uh, we also want to talk to these people and want to hear about the stories that are fantastic and the folklore and the aliens being the first, you know, (laughs) excuse out of everybody's mouth. Like we're fascinated and we don't want to have confrontation with people about it. But at the same time, we don't want that information to be wrong or people to just make stuff up and uh, fool other people or, you know, get away with making money off of it, basically. So I completely agree with you. It's it's a hard thing to do because you piss both parties off. You know, <laughs> no, nobody's uh, happy when you do that. <laughs> I think I think part of the problem in the field of cryptozoology and not just the field of cryptozoology, but uh, more or less all of Fortiana is uh, people get very much emotionally attached to the idea of uh, these cryptids existing or the aliens being here or um, ghosts walking among us that there's kind of this uh, visceral fear or, or distaste for any kind of debunking unless it was an intentional hoax. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think the best example of this to my knowledge is the Chupacabra. Doing research for the topic of my book um, and of my talk, which was, I don't think I've actually said this, uh, which was looking at uh, supposed cryptid attacks on livestock. Mm-hmm. And of course, the first thing that comes up is the chupacabra. Sure. And um, unless you look at uh, skeptical literature, everybody will flat out say, the chupacabra is um, one of the greatest mysteries of our time. It's one of the bi- biggest cryptids ever. <laughs> and I was convinced for a while, uh, even though n- something just never quite sat right with me. Um, then uh, over the summer, getting ready for uh, my chapter on the chupacabra for my book, 
I read uh, Tracking the Chupacabra by uh, Benjamin Radford Mm -hmm. and was blown away because before that, I always had the perspective of Radford that he was just a debunker. He didn't care about the truth. He just thought all of this was BS. Right. And the book was presented in the opposite way. He looked at it as, well, if it's a physical creature, it would leave this type of evidence. It would, yeah. um, we would be able to tell from the corpses of the animals. We would be able to determine the, the, what the ratty dog things that have been shot in Texas were, um, all kinds of stuff. And he does the footwork. He interviews, um, Madeline Tolentero, who is the first witness that described the, the gargoyle looking, uh, grayish, yellowish spiny creature um and kind of concluded that she uh her encounter was heavily influenced by the science fiction movie species right and (laughs) i i agree with that um determination and uh he goes to guatemala and looks into uh some of the uh animals that were found there that were shot um and he just kind of uh debunks the whole thing but not in the uh armchair you're wrong and you're stupid way. exactly he was yeah. very respectful and focused on um being objective and i think the book is absolutely one of the best cryptozoology books that i've ever read and um whenever uh someone comes up to me and asks uh well you're young you're new into this how do you get into the field uh, the two books I tell them to read are On the Track of Unknown Animals by Bernard Huvelmans, of course, and uh, Tracking the Chupacabra by Ben Radford, because that book is exactly how one should go about doing um, a cryptid investigation. Yeah. And I think that that type of methodology is lacking uh, in the field, and uh, it is a little frustrating for me. Right. That's like you said, it's the armchair people who, who are just like, somebody says this, then it's got to be this instead of being like the people who go out there and say, well, if you're saying it's this, what does that mean for the rest of it? Like uh, in the case of we talked about Thunderbirds, you know, something that is supposedly that big is going to need a lot of food. Is there that much food available in the area people are saying? Well, no, there's not. Then how can, you know, something like that be supported or like a lake monster, you know, or Nessie or something, something that big, like all these outside influences people don't take into account and they don't think about it scientifically, you know, like you got to stop and and think about it a little bit uh, instead of just taking the stories at face value. And I like how you were like, people were saying it's, it's one of the greatest mysteries of of our time. Well, of course, it's it's going to be a great mystery if there's no factual basis to its you know, <laughs> well, existence. My my thing is, it's kind of been solved already by right. Ben Radford, and it's still being championed around because people just shrug off his book as well. It's a skeptical thing, and man, that I I try to look at both sides, and I have uh, because I look at both sides, I've actually um, been leaning further into the more skeptical aspect but i definitely uh think my feet are planted firmly on the side of uh unknown animals definitely exist let's try to find them yeah i mean i completely uh hear you on that because when we started uh, blurry photos i was the same way i was like I, I want to find out about this stuff. I, I, I believe in this and this and this, and I've heard the stories on this. 
And over the five plus years that we've been doing it, I'm basically uh, a full tilt on the on the skeptic side. But I still like to hear the stories and I still want to to research the stuff and approach it. Like you said, let's hear what you got to say and then let's let's break it down and see if there's anything to it. So keep on keeping on with that. And <laughs> I think it's great that the more research you do, the more the more you start to realize, I guess, to be more rational uh, about stuff. And I'm glad to hear that you're, you're uh, at least on that path. And I was uh, I was totally impressed by your lecture at Point Pleasant, uh, not only by your already refined stage presence and speaking abilities, <laughs> which are rare even for seasoned lecturers, but by your approach to the research, which we've just been talking about, and the topics and the creatures that you presented. So uh, I, I'm excited to talk a little bit more about those, if you would indulge, and uh, have you share some of the stories with our listeners. Um, how about we get into... The details of some of these beasts and what all you found out with your work without spoiling too much, you know, for your book. Oh, trust me. Um, no interview, even if it was uh, 10 hours long, could cover uh, everything I'm going to be covering in my book. Uh, <laughs> I have about 250 individual cases of attacks, um, most of which span several weeks just in America. And I have. Uh, about a hundred or so around the world, all kinds of different stuff. Um, so there, it's certainly a huge subject that hasn't yeah. really been covered except for the chupacabra. Yeah. Now, um, the book actually started out as um, an examination of vampiric cryptids, which is kind of the spin I've been taking on my lectures because uh, people love vampires and it uh, gets people uh, in seats uh, listening to what I have to say. Vampires are hot. Exactly. Um, <laughs> but there are also some really interesting cases that kind of, at least before you really delve into the stories, kind of appear to be vampiric cryptids. Um, the first case that I really looked at um, that introduced me to this idea was um, the Vampire Beast of Bladenboro. Oh, yeah. December 1953 through De January 1954, a large dark feline um, that was described as kind of... Uh, some people said it was a black panther. Some people said that it was uh, as large as a black panther, but it had a more raggedy look to it. Um, was seen around the small town of Bladenboro, North Carolina. It was supposed. It supposedly, over the course of uh, five weeks, uh, killed, mutilated, and drank the blood of about three or four dozen animals, uh, mostly dogs and poultry. Now, that's about as much as people know when they bring up the case of the vampire beast of uh, Bladenboro. But there's a lot more to the story. It was a full-out panic in the town. Over a thousand hunters uh, for two and a half weeks scoured uh, the swamp and the forest and the fields around Bladenboro hunting for any kind of predator they could find because um, dogs were getting killed, poultry was getting killed, cats were getting killed, sheep were getting killed, uh, one or two calves were actually being slaughtered. It was um, 
badly affecting the agriculture in the area as well as terrifying the people in the town because their anim- their pets are getting killed. Yeah, what's next? Right. Our kids. There was actually a case, a story, um, December, uh, January 6th, a woman was actually charged by the animal when she walked out on her porch and saw the creature attacking her dog. Her husband comes out with a gun uh, and the animal uh, turns around and runs into the uh, swamp. But that really is what electrified all the hunters to... uh, kind of come together and start looking for whatever was doing this type of attack. Mm-hmm. And um, what was really interesting to me is just the level of panic. The, uh, the There was a mandatory, um, everybody had to be inside after dark. And um, the hunters that were going on were from uh, seven different states, according to one of the newspapers. Um, and people weren't just going out with guns. Uh, they were grabbing anything they could, uh, machetes, uh, clubs, baseball bats, very large sticks, (laughs) old, old rusty hubcaps, (laughs) bowling trophies. There was one man that was actually interviewed and, uh, they, (laughs) he said that he didn't need any weapon. He went out with his fists and his brain alone. (laughs) to hunt the beast <laughs> and this was happening in a town of less than 800 people there's more more hunters in the area than the the town uh, had people in it and several newspapers pointed that out <laughs> the the uh police chief at the time i have immense respect for the man i never met him he passed away before i was born but from the way the newspapers report how he handled it, I think it was the best example of someone handling these type of scares um, really ever. He went around shaking people <laughs> and just said, stop it. <laughs> <laughs> he monitored uh, what was going on. He made sure all of the hunters were um, being monitored by the police force. He put out um, guards around the town and around uh, surrounding areas. He um, asked the hunters to uh, be accompanied by um, some of his officers to make sure they weren't doing anything illegal while they were hunting. The best he could do, they didn't have a vet veterinarian in the town at the time. So the best he could do was have the uh, local morgue uh, examine the animals. And uh, he had them type up uh, reports concerning them. I have, I've been unable to dig them up. The uh, Bladenboro Police Department, uh, when I asked them if they had any copies, they said that they got rid of uh, anything or it's in uh, deep storage. And I would have to uh, file something to get them out. And I'm currently waiting for that to pend. Wow, nice. But uh, his name was uh, Roy Fors. And he was just doing a phenomenal job, in my opinion. Uh, but it was still not quite handled in the opportune way. Um, but none of these are, I mean, uh, nobody expects these type of things to happen, especially not at this level and people were panicking. So you didn't have a lot of time to think you just had to go. Um, I think it was handled quite well to be completely honest. Now the attacks kind of started to wane, Right around January 20th. Um, that's really when they more or less stopped. But sightings of a large dark cat creature um, continued into uh, 
the very end of January and uh, periodic hunts um, continued into February. A lot of times I get people asking me, well, what do you think it was? Do you think it was a vampire cat? I don't think it was a vampire cat. Yes, it was a vampire cat, (laughs) sir. (laughs) I don't think it was a vampire cat. There are a couple of good explanations for what it was. Um, Bobcat would probably be my first one for at least the sightings and some of the attacks. Mm-hmm. because uh, there were actually three bobcats that were shot by the hunters um, during the panic. But the first two were shot during it, it kind of in the middle of the sightings and the attacks. The last one was shot about a month afterwards uh, after they stopped. Um, so it's completely possible that uh, what people were seeing was the bobcat and bobcats yeah. uh, are rare da- down in North Carolina. Um, it's also quite possible that it was a large dog. There was a particular dog that was this mixed breed of, um, Mastiff and, uh, one or two other things that this, uh, local, (laughs) I think he was a farmer named Zeke Stanton, uh, said escaped and he named the dog big boy. And according to his interview, Big Boy was fed on nothing but blood and scraps from the local slaughterhouse (laughs) and had previously gotten out of his pen and attacked a full-grown cow and attempted to drink its blood. (laughs) Now, uh, Big Boy had escaped about a week before the attack started, so I think some of the panic definitely can be attributed to the dog. Uh, actually, uh, the headlines uh, when Zeke uh, came out about it were pretty amusing. They they said something along the lines of uh, big boy dog blamed for vampire cat. <laughs> um, <laughs> A great way that old timey newspapers used to used to report. <laughs> exactly. Uh, they, they, um, they either called the creature the vampire cat or the bleeder beast. Oh, wow. That's pretty metal. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but Vampire Cat is definitely the more popular one. Yeah. What's really interesting about Bladenboro is that it's not unique in uh, North Carolina. There is a long history of uh, strange cat creatures um, seen around North Carolina. Generally, they're um, very similar to Black Panther reports. And uh, some of them date back to the uh, 1830s. I've been able to find newspaper stories. And uh, that's pretty significant. Um, Up until the 1920s, the the cats were called uh, Santer or Saunter because of the way uh, it walked. Mm. And uh, then it was just called the Panthers until uh, Bladenboro happened. And uh, for some reason, Bladenboro happened at the right time. And it just kind of exploded around the country and uh, became following. It became the the thing to bring up when there was a mysterious cat scene in North Carolina. Um, mm-hmm. There were there was actually another series of attacks a lot less in the town of Robazone, which is like if I remember if I'm remembering correctly, it's like 20 miles away from Bladenboro in December of 1954 which uh, the attack patterns were very similar to uh, Bladenborough's case, but they o- that only happened for 
maybe two or three days and then it stopped. There were a couple of footprints that were found that were said to be large cat footprints and it just kind of disappeared. Hmm. The other notable thing is uh, Monster Quest, which uh, is definitely championed as the best cryptozoology show. And it was certainly influential when I was young, uh, being interested in this in this subject. They did an episode in 2011 or 12 on uh, the Beast of Bladenboro. And uh, that actually inspired a hoax in 2013 um, concerning uh, a supposed large vampire cat attacking and killing uh several horses outside uh just outside of bladenborough i tracked down the origin of the hoax um which was on uh hub pages which is a uh website where people can uh just kind of blog and they get paid for it and there's no real filter for what they're saying <laughs> and the most interesting part of the hoax was uh and what ended up kind of showing that it was a hoax was there were two pictures of horses laying on the ground um one from further away on a hill and they were laying on the ground um and he couldn't get a lot of detail and the other was of this like very large horse laying on the ground that it, it, se- it appeared to be uh soaked and it did seem to be bleeding uh and i, I was really interested because um there are no real good pictures of the initial bladenborough cat attacks so i was really interested to see what these might be and i tracked it down and the further away picture of the horses laying in the ground on the grass was from a uk horse rancher who has a blog on his just daily life and he uh took pictures of his horses basking in the sun uh because it was such a nice day oh uh and it was actually published like um, just a week or two before this guy put up his uh, blog post. And um, I actually sent a message, an email to the author of the um, uh, horse blog. And uh, he was very unhappy when he found out what the picture was being used for. Oh, wow. And uh, I, I'm not sure what he's planning on doing with it, but I, I can say that he was not too happy. Then yeah. the other picture was of a horse also in the UK that um, almost drowned and was saved by uh, some people that happened to be passing on the highway. Hmm. Uh, and that was that happened uh, three years before the hoax. And when you Google Beast of Bladenborough, the story is... The, the 2013 story is the first thing that comes up. So, uh, so every time I talk about this stuff, I try to, if I have time, I try to bring that up and tell people it's not yeah. true. Jeez, man. And, and so, and it was just from this, um, these hub pages that this, that this hoax came out. Yeah. That that's where it started, but it was picked up by, uh, some other paranormal news, uh, media. I think cryptozoology news.com, mm-hmm. uh, put up a post about it. Um, I know that, uh, week and weird, uh, Greg and Dana Newkirk, uh, they put up mm-hmm. a post about it. And, uh, is that something that frustrates me with the field as well? Because there's no real filter. Yeah. No verification. To check if anything's BS. Yeah. Uh, they just, Oh, that's interesting. That'll make a good blog post. They just copy down the information and put it up. Got your click. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's funny because we did uh, Beast of Bladenborough oh, two or three years ago on Miscrypted, and so it's all coming back to me, you know, the the stories and stuff. And 
I, didn't they didn't they shut down the schools for it for a time because they they were so scared that's what um later story uh, later um articles and books uh talking about the subject said but i have not been able to corroborate that with any um initial uh accounts you know from newspapers uh-huh. or um the handful of people i've been able to talk to who remember the case so it might have happened but i haven't been able to find anything concrete about that Gotcha. Gotcha. I know that children were being warned to not go outside at all during the time, uh, but I don't know if they actually went so far as to close the schools. And maybe that's just a common trope that gets attached to stories because uh, I think the same thing was said to happen for a Jersey Devil uh, outbreak uh, at one point in the early 20th century. Yeah, in 1909. Yeah. Yeah, that one. Uh, they definitely did close the schools then, as far as I know, for that one. I don't know if it's if it's one of those things that just sounds good enough to like, you know, help the story be more true if you say it, or you know, in that case, it uh, it actually did happen. So who's who's to say? But uh, it's wild what this stuff causes uh, people to do and how viral it can get you know especially for that time i completely agree and i have an excellent story that really kind of shows that it was absolutely one of my favorite cases that i was looking at um when i was doing research for uh this on this topic uh it happened in uh august of 71 canton township michigan and not only is it one of my favorite stories but it also has one of my favorite names of any mysterious if you will creature ever and that's the phantom gobbler (laughs) (laughs) that was that was my mascot of my school i went to (laughs) and (laughs) that'd be an awesome this the story is really unique because it wasn't like a big wave of attacks that happened to a variety of people it was literally just one man's vendetta against this unseen creature that was uh, attacking his animals. <laughs> this 70-some-year-old farmer n- named yes. Fred Kuhn. Oh, perfect. He, on August 5th, lost a total of 197 chickens, 55 rabbits, and 6 turkeys in the span of one night. Oh my gosh, too many animals to begin with. He <laughs> he flipped out for obvious reasons. Of course. Gathered every hunter he could in the area to hold uh nightly vigils looking for the creature. He set these elaborate traps um waiting for the beast. Um the police officers at the time were convinced it was a pack of domestic dogs. But he was adamant that it couldn't have been a dog, that it had to have been a mad panther. <laughs> um, and that's a trope that comes up in a lot of stories, including Bladenborough. Uh, they, they assume that uh, since no normal animal could do any of these things, mm. they say that it must be mad or... or, or uh, Rabid or rabid or a trained animal that was abused at one time and escaped. There's some very elaborate stories that have been tacked on to these cases to explain just the massive number of animals that have been killed or the, the weird aspects of some of the um, attacks. But anyway, Kuhn. So 
uh, right around August 20th, the hunters kind of got tired of standing out all night on Kuhn's property. <laughs> I never met him. He died uh, very long before I was born. And I haven't been able to track down any family, if he had any, to be able to talk to them. But I imagine him as kind of like walking back and forth in front of the hunters that he hired, like ranting about this mad panther <laughs> um, and and kind of just like, I, I don't know, just being almost this cartoonishly crazy guy. And I do have to say that is my image of him. And that is not supported by anything that was said in the media at the time. It's just how I like to imagine what happened. Probably ranting about hippies. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But uh, the, the, the creature, something came back Um, on August 26th, uh, his last four rabbits, the last four animals he had were attacked and killed he actually after the hunters quit he uh put up a whole bunch of bear traps and uh several other types of traps in a circle around this table that he had the four rabbit cages on that he padlocked ready to get this creature um it uh from some of the descriptions i imagine almost like uh wily coyote trying to catch the roadrunner yeah uh and uh, I don't know if the media was playing it up or if that's actually what he did, but it's uh, just rather entertaining and really interesting to see if it's true, the level of um, determination that this man had to protect sure. his last four rabbits. I mean, it's a, it's a sad story, you know, it is losing so many, so many animals, but that, I mean, that's that's interesting. Uh, so how does something get through bear traps in a padlock? He never actually set the traps because he was concerned that his domestic cat that roamed around the farm would get into the traps and die. So despite the fact that they were there, he never set them. Oh, no. Um, he just laid traps out? <laughs> yes. Uh. Um, and uh, whatever got into the rabbits ripped open the wire cages uh. and... Uh, didn't kill the rabbits, just kind of snapped their necks and shredded them a little bit and left them in the cages. After that, the newspapers kind of just stopped reporting on it. Well, yeah, no animals left. <laughs> I haven't been able to find any more information about what happened afterwards. If wow. Kuhn moved away, which I would, um, or if he got more animals uh, and had better defenses or what he did. But uh, the story itself is just very fascinating. And that's a good place to transition into kind of um, some of the explanations for these things. Mm-hmm. Now, with these cases, there are two factors that get people to think that they're some kind of unknown animal or a mad panther or some kind of uh, just weird thing. Uh, and the two factors are one, there's just an enormous amount of things that were killed, just massive, like the 197 chickens. There's another example in uh, Richland, Ohio, where over 140 sheep over the course of a week from four farms were killed. Just incredible numbers of uh, just slaughter. And the second thing is uh, how the animals are killed. Uh, Bladenboro, the beast didn't just supposedly drain their blood. It also, um, and this was seen in almost every case 
of um, animal attack, which is really interesting. It was very consistent. The skulls were crushed. The jaw was ripped open. The tongue was removed, uh, apparently eaten. And the sides of the animals were slashed to the point where they appeared to be shredded. That's very gory, and it's unfortunate that I have to get into it. But what's significant is that the elaborate way that these animals were killed was almost identical in all of these examples of the deaths, um, especially with the dogs that were killed. Mm -hmm. They were just flat out exactly the same way. Uh, and I think that's very significant. And um, people in the area didn't know what it was, so they assumed it was something weird. But mm. there are some very, very good explanations for these things. First off, um, vampires don't really exist in the animal kingdom. There are um, some in uh you know the insect world. There are quite a few in the insect world. Um, sure. There are uh, other animals like leeches um, and certain things that do drink blood. But the only mammal that is known to drink blood is the vampire bat. It is not very small. It's about the size of a teacup. And they don't like suck blood. They make a tiny incision in uh, the ankle of an animal. Generally, it's cows or sheep. And uh, they have uh, anticoagulants in their saliva that keep the blood flowing until they uh, finish drinking. And they just sit there and kind of just lap it up. 99.99% of the time, they don't uh, drink enough to affect anything. Um, The the animals hardly even notice it. And their teeth are so sharp that the uh, animals don't even wake up. It doesn't hurt them at all. Uh, the concern concerning vampire bats is uh, they are known to carry various diseases sure. and that can cause problems with uh, domestic animals. But anyway, that is the only um, example of mammals that drink blood. It is not a feasible uh, thing for large animals like you know, felines or uh, canines to drink blood. It's just not feasible at all. But there are a couple different processes that do explain why people think that the animals have been drained of blood. The first thing is uh, most predators, uh, at least in the uh, carnivore family of uh, mammals attack generally by going to the throat. um, Oftentimes Uh, Mm -hmm. felines, that is what they do most of the time because they can snap the neck and it's an easy, clean, efficient kill. Uh, canines do it quite a bit as well. Then, uh, what happens when they bite the throat is you get the puncture wounds on the neck, which appears to be the, the vampire-type uh, bite. Oh, yeah. And um, animals don't actually always eat what they kill. There's a process called uh, surplus killing, which also, hand-in-hand, hand, uh, explains why there are so many there's such a high number of these kills when they do happen. Um, surplus killing is seen in every um, mammal uh, in the carnivore family that we know of, um, especially uh, canines and uh, felines. And what this process is, is um, when a carnivore gets into an area where there are a lot of um, prey, moving around in a panicked fashion, like 
prey generally do, uh-huh. their hunting instincts go into overdrive. And even if they were hunting for food, they will kill everything they can see until everything stops moving. They will kill one animal, then bounce to the next. It's uh, When I read some of these descriptions, it reminds me almost of the uh, way Batman fights the bad guys in um, the Arkham games. Uh, you just keep yeah. mashing the fight button and he just bounces between the bad guys uh, until they're down. Right. Um, and that's exactly how these uh, things are described. And it's not like they kill maybe 30 animals. The highest number that I've seen in the wild is um, a pack of three wolves killed in under four hours over 400 elk. Wow. Yeah. And and elk aren't sheep sized. <laughs> no. And um Jeez. the scientists who looked in looked at what happened, uh it appeared that the wolves took on most of these animals on their own. It's just they worked together to just kill everything. Hmm. There are a lot of um evolutionary reasons as to why animals do this, but the, the there there are two main ones. Uh, the first one is uh eliminate all uh food competition for their um competitors. Uh, if you kill everything, the other um, animals that are competing with won't be able to find food, so they'll die off, and the rest of the prey animals will be all theirs. Right. Then the other thing is, as I said before, their hunting instincts go into overdrive, and they just feel the need to just kill, kill, kill. And it's very brutal. And a lot of people are uncomfortable with uh, thinking about this because you know cats are cute, dogs are cute, wolves are adorable, uh, but. But they're still animals. They're also vicious killers. Yeah. <laughs> and domestic dogs do this all the time. Domestic dogs are one of the worst um, uh, culprits of this, especially when it comes to um, livestock. A lot of people, when um, they think of how domestic dogs attack um, other animals, they think that they uh, just shred the animal up, which is true if they're, if there's just one of them. But oftentimes, uh, domestic dogs and coyotes and wolves will just bite their neck and kill them that way, uh, maybe shake them around a little bit, and then move on to the next one. Right. Shredding's more in the feline category, right? Yes. Well, um, dogs do rip apart animals. That does happen, and it's uh, fairly frequent, but that's um, almost only seen when the animals are, uh, when there's only one or two. Mm-hmm. Now- the other thing I bring up is mountain lions follow a lot of these attack patterns, especially the Bladenborough case. Mountain lions don't just go for the throat. Um, if it's a larger animal or they uh, think it poses a bit of a um, concern, they will actually bite the top of their skull and crush the skull in as well. Metal. Preventing the uh, animal to be able to thrash around as much, uh, maybe hurt them. Uh, like what was seen in the Bladenboro case. And uh, for the even larger animals, they will latch onto their sides and uh, snap their neck that way uh, by biting from behind, uh, which explains the slash marks that was seen on the uh, dogs or um, other cats. And mountain lions don't just kill uh for surplus killing and then for food, they also kill for sport. They, they will just kill something if they feel like it. It's the same reason that if you have a laser pointer, your uh, domestic cat will pat, bat at it for hours. 
Um, they just have the instinct and they feel the drive to do that. I've also, I mean, part of it is I've heard that they can, uh, not only when they crush the skull, when they latch on, but if they latch on to a part with their mouth, then the rest of the limbs kind of go into overdrive with like a, you know, like yep. kicking and, and scratching and everything else in their, their mouth while not maybe not delivering a killing bite really attaches them to the victim and then you know their paws and claws do the rest it operates like a clamp and uh, they just slaughter but what's really interesting is um i didn't realize this until i started going to more lectures is i like maps i'm fascinated by being able to plot out where things happen and so i decided to sit down and take all of my cases color code them and then plot them out on a map as to where they happened And there is an exact divide from the Mississippi east to west, from east of the Mississippi. That is where nine out of 10 of these attacks happen. Whether it be, um, I have several, I I have quite a few uh, attacks um, on domestic animals that uh, Bigfoot creatures are said to do, um, dog-like creatures. I have a handful of reptiles. I have one or two flying creatures. Nine out of 10 of them are on the the eastern side of the Mississippi. Hmm. The Western side has a handful, but not as many. There are a handful of reasons why I think this, uh, why, why I think this is. Um, first, mountain lions are known to be on the Western side of the Mississippi. They are supposed to be extinct over here on the East. Now, you talk to anybody who lives in rural areas and nearly any hunter, and they will tell you flat out mountain lions are here. Yeah. Um, I have been doing quite a bit of research into the possible survival of the Eastern Cougar, and I'm pretty convinced as well. Uh, There's a lot, a lot of evidence, including um, dead cougars, um, kills like I've been looking into, uh, paw prints, um, all kinds of trail cam photos. There's quite a bit. And a lot of people kind of try to spin this uh, conspiracy theory with the government as to why they aren't recognized to still exist here. But that's uh, irrelevant. Um, In my opinion, they're still here. And I think that some of these attacks support that because they are very consistent with how these uh, animals uh, kill and um, what they're known to do. And the fact that um, they're supposed to be extinct here really does kind of perpetuate the idea that whatever they do is weird. So it would be picked up by the media. It would be more known and it would get more attention. Right. And uh, the other reason I think that there are less attacks on the uh, Western side is because in the 60s and 70s, any weird dead thing that happened in the West was just kind of snapped up by the cattle mutilation craze. And I think that still remains today. And there are significant differences between what is described with cattle mutilations and these attacks, for example, clear signs of predation um, concerning these attacks. Like you can tell something attacked it. Um, It wasn't, abducted by aliens and operated on it was right. killed by a known by by an unknown or known animal as well as uh oftentimes these are done on smaller animals or uh if they are cattle it's the calves or the weaker ones um exactly what a predator would hunt for yeah um and the way they're killed 
the the way what happens to them is different too. Uh, the tongues are missing in the cattle mutilations. The the um, certain organs, certain um, just uh, parts of them are missing with just kind of slices. Now that's not to say I think that aliens abducted the cattle. Um, I have done enough research into it to be able to conclude that it's not the same thing as what I'm looking at with the cryptids, but not enough to really be able to say, well, it must be this or it's probably this. Um, sure. I think that uh, that's for some more um, experienced researchers in that aspect to look into. Uh, anyone interested in the subject, I recommend uh, the um, stalking of the herd or something by uh, Chris O'Brien, an excellent book on the subject. Um, but, but anyway, uh, I think that, uh, even if there was a weird animal death or a whole bunch of weird animal deaths on the Western side of the United States, it was probably grouped into, uh, cattle mutilations, whether or not it was the same thing. Yeah. I'm wondering if part of that might be the diaspora of people. And by that, I mean the Eastern side, uh, of the, um, Mississippi, you've got people living in closer proximity and the Western, uh, you know, it's, it's a little bit more spread out, uh, especially through the early 20th century. Uh, I just wonder if that might play into it at all with what's getting reported and, and what people might just be like, well, <laughs> there goes my livestock. I guess I'll, I think keep, keep farming. I think that's, um, an absolutely fair point, And I agree. And I also think that it's uh, because uh, farmers in the West are more spread out and they generally have more livestock, they're more used to predation. Um, right. They they know what happens when a mountain lion gets a hold of their animals. Um, they know what happens when a coyote gets a hold of their animals, even though, like I said, they're, in my opinion, mountain lions still over here and there are coyotes definitely over here. There's coyotes in Chicago. There are coyotes everywhere. <laughs> I've been like within uh, 15 feet of one. I know <laughs> it's crazy, but even over here, I don't, I'm not sure why, if it's because we're more closer or what, but even farmers over here aren't as familiar with some of these processes. And yeah. that's definitely shown in these cases as well as I live across from a pretty big farm with quite a few livestock and quite a large variety of livestock. And, um, I've walked over there several times and talked to them about what happens when they have animals attack. And I brought up surplus killing. I brought up lividity and I didn't use the, those terms um, because they are very, they, they, they have the scientific feel. And um, unless you look into it from a scientific perspective, you won't be familiar with the term, but I did bring up what happens and uh, they were not familiar with anything like that. Hmm. And uh, I asked them how they would have approached it if it did happen um and uh they flat out told me they would have uh contacted somebody because they thought uh some kind of um strange exotic animal would have escaped yeah hmm. and that's that plays back into your um what you were saying about the panic mm -hmm. and stuff and not knowing what to do like you know you've you've probably got a plan in place when a tornado hits right but you don't have a a plan in place when there's a a phantom gobbler about <laughs> So exactly, <laughs> I can see why, why people panic and why people jump to some pretty out there claims or, or ideas. It's a, it's a, a great point. 
correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like I remember you saying uh, in the lecture that part of the playing into the vampire aspect of it that people don't often think about is that after uh, a, an animal is dead or, you know, a, a body is, is uh, has been dead for a while, the blood will tend to concentrate at the lowest point. And sometimes, you know, if you're if you're sufficiently shredded, sometimes that means the the blood will drain out through the bottom, and in maybe into the ground and and soak in or disappear, and then it looks like the blood has been drained. Is that uh, am I right in saying that or remembering that? Y- yes and no. Um, I was actually going to get into that. I think I got a little sidetracked. Uh, that's a process called lividity, and it doesn't even have to be an animal that was shredded or, uh, you know, has holes for the blood to drain out. Mm -hmm. What happens with lividity is whenever an animal dies, the heart stops pumping, their blood pressure drops, the blood cools and thickens, and uh, drains down to the um, center of gravity Mm -hmm. into just this pool. And uh, even if it doesn't leave the body, which most of the time it doesn't, it can be almost impossible if you're not trained in determining this to be able to see if it was actually drained of blood or not, if it actually is bloodless. So maybe superficially, you know, what you're looking at towards the top of the the victim, it could look like it's been drained, but unless you know what you're looking for, it's probably going to be down towards, like you said, the center of gravity, right? And by knowing what you're looking for, I'm talking about actually opening the animal up and uh, spreading it out and looking for the blood. Um, the blood's not really watery. It's uh, After it um, thickens, it's more like a sludge, and it moves very slowly because of the coagulants, the, the things that give us scabs. Right. And... Um, because of that, even if you pick up the animal and move it around or cut into it, it can be very hard to find blood. Interesting. And uh, that's something that, uh, because it's a little more morbid, uh, nobody's really familiar with and nobody wants to bring up. Oh, I, th- I think people are, are okay with that these days with the <laughs> CSIs and the NCISs and all the other letter shows. <laughs> well. It, it's, I it's, would bet they would be. It's honestly a fascinating physical process. And um, honestly, through my research into this uh, subject, I've learned more about what happens when an animal dies than any 17-year-old you'll probably ever meet. <laughs> but it's, it's all really interesting. And it goes back to uh, my interest in animals just overall. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's one of the coolest things about this subject because I can seamlessly meld um, what we understand about the natural world and um, some of these really neat, interesting behaviors and uh, things about animals like surplus killing and uh, some of the methods of predation with the really interesting and really neat and fun sounding mysteries like the phantom gobbler and the bleeder beast and all these cool cryptozoological things that people play up and don't really think critically about and want to learn what explains it. Right. Amen. Critical thinking. <laughs> we're, we're lacking a lot of it these days. <laughs> I also think that I might be coming off a bit as um, hardcore skeptic here. And uh, I definitely am not. I, um, as I said before, I approach these things from an objective point of view, but at least with these type of attacks, there are good explanations for them. Um, we understand right. these things. And even if you can't really prove it from the kind of vague and obscure um, descriptions and references in some of these newspaper reports, 
there are processes that we understand that can be very, very weird to someone who's not um, educated and know how these things work. Meaning uh, the, the simplest answer is often the true one. And uh, with these, at least um, 99% of the time, there are these very simple answers right. uh, for these things. Exactly. Yeah. Now, setting aside any accounts that are just unprovable, but because they don't have a lot, you know, that maybe there weren't a lot of uh, articles or not a lot has been said about it, or you couldn't find a lot of research. Are there any that leave you questioning, um, like, well, maybe there's, maybe there is something here that's um, more than just uh, a cat or a, a stray, you know, pack of coyotes or, or something like that that could have done something. The weirdest one that um, I can think of without bringing in uh, Bigfoot and UFOs into the discussion, because there was um, in Indiana in 72, there was a very convoluted story um, that was talked about extensively in fate magazine as well as some newspapers about how this family saw a ufo and then the next day they saw a bigfoot thing that was attacking their chickens and there was it, it was a very complex story and it's just weird overall um but it also gets into the um a little bit into the woo and i'm kind of skeptical of it in general mm-hmm. um but honestly the story that um baffles me the most was uh Bay Springs, Mississippi, January of 1977 to March of 1977. Uh, 77 was a huge year for weird stuff. Uh, monster stories everywhere. Um, mm. Over the course of several months, pretty much everywhere. Um, and there were a handful of uh, attacks that were accompanying this as well. And Bay Springs in Mississippi, this dude named uh, Joseph Dixon uh, claimed that a handful of his large pigs began to have their ears eaten off. Some of them were uh, killed. Some of them weren't. Some of them survived without their ears. And the ones that were killed had slash marks on their sides, but their necks weren't broken, as far as anyone could tell. Over the course of about a month and a half, a handful of his pigs were just attacked and their ears were eaten off. Nothing else was eaten from them, just their ears. And uh, several other farmers actually in the area started experiencing this at the tail end of February into March. Um, Olus Milton uh, was the uh, most significant of these because after two of his pigs had their ears eaten off, he started uh, keeping guard um, on his pig pen and he sees this large black dog creature. Um, he, he said he thought it was a dog because he saw the ears that were sticking up. Um, and he said it was about the size of, it was a little bigger than a wolf. He said that it started running toward him. He fired at it, missed it, and it ran back into the forest. Um, and after that, the, uh, attack stopped at his farm. I think there might've been one or two, uh, that, uh, continued. But as far as I know, I've even talked to, uh, zoologists and people that are, um, highly experienced and experts in methods of predation of canids and uh, felines. And they do not have any reason as far as they know as to why anything would eat just the ears. It makes more sense for an animal to just kill the animal instead of eating the ears. Maybe they just wanted a snack. (laughs) 
<laughs> and it it bothers me not to have um at least a suggestion yeah but i don't and it's just weird <laughs> it was it's just a fun story to bring up newspapers were calling it the uh vicious ear eater Come on, newspapers. You can do better than that. <laughs> the uh, And actually, um, it's been written about quite a few times. Uh, Linda Godfrey brought it up in her American Monsters book. Uh, Paul and Ben Eno wrote about it in their uh, Beyond the Paranormal book two, talking about cryptozoology. Um, so it's out there, but it's something that's really obscure. And if you're just a fan of the paranormal, you probably, if you have read about it, you don't remember or you just flat out never heard of it wild and and, you know wolves are big they are for something to be bigger than a wolf you know according to this guy that's that's pretty sizable and you know of course uh everyone has to bring up there are certainly a lot of issues with uh witness reports sure um certain people their memory everybody's memory can get uh changed or influenced by a number of factors um and Everybody can misinterpret things. But part of my problem is a lot of these cases happened quite a long time ago. And the only resource that I have about these things are um, newspaper articles or a handful of police reports that I've been able to track down. I haven't really been able to find any, um, as well as some uh, Fate magazine articles from the 70s that uh, Jerome Clark and Lauren Coleman wrote about because they did quite a few of these cases and did quite a lot of good work with them. But uh, now this is going to be heresy, but uh, (laughs) they never took the time to explain them. Uh, They just kind of presented, here's this weird thing and let it alone. Well, yeah. And, and sometimes that's maybe all you can do. And certainly I think Charles Fort back in the day uh, did that himself, you know, it was just like, here's a bunch of fish that fell out of the sky. (laughs) Well, Fort also looked at it from a, philosophical perspective he looked at it as we're not equipped to explain these things yet but Mm. if i collect them there might be scientists or researchers that will be able to explain them in the future and unfortunately with a lot of uh publications like fate and i do have to preface this with i've been published by fate i like fate but (laughs) they don't oftentimes they emphasize the story over what might explain it and sure. while that's fine, it can be frustrating for a researcher like myself because um, people think that they're just everything's a mystery when a lot of things do have good explanations. And sometimes the explanations are just as, if not more interesting than yeah. some of the implications. Right. Like, like some of these uh, things that these, uh, that these animals that we know and understand can do. Yeah, and and if a uh, a cat that's supposed to be extinct in an area, you know, maybe isn't exactly that's, that's pretty interesting. That that's turning some heads, and you know, like like these newspapers back in the day and fate. Of course, the other thing that's frustrating for researchers, they're not selling them for the researchers. They're obviously selling them to to sell them. And right. So maybe sometimes they would purposefully leave out, you know details or not want to go after the truth of the matter but there's uh, there's a bunch of problems with newspaper accounts on their own and (laughs) um i love newspapers i am one of the few of my generation that you'll ever talk to that actually sits down and reads a newspaper once a day i like the feel of the newspapers i like just the way they just write things 
and it's partially because I'm a comic book fan and newspapers were always the coolest places to work at because that's where Superman worked at. That's where <laughs> Spider-Man worked at. That's where all the villains seem to want to infiltrate. Um, and I grew up wanting to work at a newspaper company and that's not really feasible today, but back yeah. then, um, newspapers were exactly where you not only got your, um, local news, but you also got your local entertainment, uh, small town newspapers, um, especially in the, uh, 1800s and early 1900s, they definitely hoaxed things to fill up space. Oh, yeah. oh, it's a slow, slow news day. Nobody got married this week and no one had dinner with someone interesting this week. Let's make up a story about a man from Mars. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That type of thing. So when you're looking at stories from that age, it can be really difficult to be able to determine what's truth and what is uh, just them filling up space. The way I look at it is if it's a multi-day thing, generally it's probably more reliable. Uh-huh. Or, or would you say even a multi-paper thing? Yeah, more than one? definitely. Um, unless uh, it was picked up by something like Associated Press and just kind of mm-hmm. moved around. Um, because that yeah. did happen with several um, supposed airship cases that uh, um, went uh, countrywide that almost certainly were hoaxes. But anyway, um, small towns also, they assume, since everyone knows everyone, they assume you know who this person is, so they can just refer to them by their nickname, or uh, by their first name, or just say the mayor, um, or or something like that. And it can be really hard to kind of track down who these people actually were if you want to try to talk to family or something. Um, And then also, as, as we said before, they wouldn't outright hoax things if it was happening, but they would play up things. They would emphasize it was a vampire beast or they would emphasize and its ears were eaten off with surgical precision. (laughs) So-and-so was scared near to death. Exactly. (laughs) And in the other thing, that's also that that's simultaneously a frustration and endless entertainment with these old newspaper reports is that, Newspapers liked to take them and kind of either be infinitely sarcastic and kind of uh, passive aggressive about these stories Mm -hmm. and kind of, oh, a mad panther. Yeah, right. Or they would use these stories as well as the other small towns. They would use these stories to address um, other town concerns. There was a case in Connecticut in the 40s where um, there were a handful of big cat stories and um, one or two attacks, which put it in my radar. And um, three weeks after these things stopped, a um, factory shut down because all of the workers went on strike because they were unhappy about the uh, dump across the street smelling in the summer. But they didn't just go on strike to protest. They, their excuse was they went to go hunt the cat, the, the cat thing that was seen around the town. And uh, it led to uh, like three weeks of news coverage over the strike while people were uh, supposedly out in the forest hunting this cat. Free vacation. It led to um, dump strike uh, leads to um, catty hunt or something like that. And they're just weird newspaper um, headlines that were front page news at the time. Oh, yeah. um, 
there's another case, uh, the Granby cat in Granby, Connecticut in the fifties. Uh, uh, <laughs> there's a whole bunch of weird things that happened with this story, but the weirdest was the uh, state fish and wildlife director said that uh, he totally did not believe it was a panther that was attacking these animals and it was being seen in the area. So he said that if someone caught the panther, he would personally grill it and eat it. He eat panther steaks for dinner. Not exactly. Uh, I'll eat my hat. <laughs> exactly. Grill, grilled panthers probably pretty good. <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> he was hoping someone would catch it. So he could. <laughs> That's funny. But the the and it all adds flavor and um so does that grilled panther <laughs> <laughs> and it's something that um I think that uh some of these um large small like like popular um small town creature stories are missing like the Mothman or Momo or uh, some of the ones that get really popular, they're missing kind of just the fun spin on it that some of these newspapers take. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Which kind of grounds it. But, you know, yeah. again, that that grounding is not really what the, the meat of a good story, I guess, <laughs> would be. It's more of like like you and uh, you and us. Like, uh, you, you have a good story, but then something like that's the icing to it, to where it's like, you know... Hey, Keep keep it in in reality and keep it fun. Keep it right. The, there was um, another story. Now, almost all of these that I'm talking about are um, cat related because uh, that's about seventy percent of the stories that I have, um, and they're also simultaneously some of the more interesting ones. Mm-hmm. But there are quite a few Bigfoot supposed Bigfoot ones and dogs and stuff, as I said. But Monument City, Indiana. In uh, June of 1962, this farmer named Ed Mormon was uh, out hunting on his property one day, and he said that he was um, attacked and leaped upon by a lioness, <laughs> which means mountain lion. Sure. <laughs> um, but, but if you say it's an African lion, it gets more exciting. <laughs> and he, he said that he fired a shot, it got scared away, and the next day, uh, 12 of his pigs were drained of blood. News, the, the local newspapers just ran off with this. They started saying, uh, Huntington County jittery over vampire like monster, uh, all, all kinds of stuff. But one vampire of the fire th- lion hybrid, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but one of the theories that was suggested was even crazier than the uh, vampiric big boy dog, uh, from Bladenboro. They said that, uh, maybe it was an escaped grizzly bear that was uh fed nothing but uh t-bone steaks and beer what is this a polish army corps bear (laughs) there was someone in the town that came out and said my bear escaped and this is what i fed him my bear Mm -hmm. (laughs) a lot of these stories people associate with uh pets escaping i think that's a valid um suggestion but yeah who's keeping a bear as a pet my alcoholic bear escaped, <laughs> attacked a dude, <laughs> and then thought it was a lion. Drained so, pigs of blood. So this alcoholic bear was it just <laughs> okay? I don't know. But the next Here day, I am trying to make sense of this story. The next day, the same newspaper says, "Well, of course it couldn't have been a bear. It would have crushed Ed Mormon after it leaped on him." <laughs> That was their reasoning as to why it couldn't have been a bear. 
And I don't know, I don't know if they were mocking the theory or just mocking the whole thing in general, <laughs> but it makes for a really funny read. Yeah. Um, and it's something that I definitely had to include in my book. Man. I mean, my mind went there too. I can't say it didn't. Like, if you're if you're feeding a bear uh, beer and steaks, I would think that it would be a pretty big bear. But if if somebody's like, "Oh no, it was a lion," I would. I then that makes me think. Well, if it was a bear, then it's malnourished, <laughs> also hairless. Uh, <laughs> this goes everywhere. <laughs> well, that's that's pretty great. I, I can't wait to to read this when it comes out. I think uh, I think we're gonna wind it down. Is there anything else uh, you want to talk about before we? Um, we head out. Yeah, actually, I do have something that I've been trying to promote in all my interviews. Um, I am the Ohio representative for the Center for Fortean Zoology, which is the largest um, cryptozoology group in the world. And I'm also one of the youngest members. And being one of the youngest members, uh, John Downs, who runs the organization, was definitely someone that was instrumental in getting me um, a lot of the opportunities that I've had. Um, he was the first person to publish an article of mine. Uh, he was actually the person that kind of pushed me into writing an article because I didn't really feel like it. And uh, because of that, um, one of the ways that I'm trying to give back to the CFZ is uh, I'm working with John Downs and um, a Kentucky researcher named Alex Hawkins to put together a um, young cryptozoologist group underneath the CFC. And we're calling it the uh, Next Generation Initiative. And um, it, we're trying to build this community where young cryptozoologists like myself, um, like Alex, can um, have a place where we work together, where we can um, support each other, where we can um, improve each other's research. Um, basically, uh, do all the things that I kind of had to uh, learn on my own or uh, ask researchers who have been doing this for upwards of 50 years. And that can be a little intimidating for uh, someone my age. Sure. Intimidating for someone my age. <laughs> And it's also um, something that it can be really hard to break into this field. I've been really lucky. Um, I've just ended up meeting some of the right people, been supported by some of the right people. But um, so, some teens who want to be researchers haven't had some of the opportunities that I've had. And the goal of the uh, NGI is to really give them these opportunities without having to go to conferences like I do or have to have the time to do a podcast and all kinds of things that really, if nothing else, promote yourself and uh, give people an identity. Uh, to look at you as. And uh, if, if you're not going to the conferences and if you're unable to, it'd be really hard to do that. Right. So um, that's what I want the NGI to be. And it's completely unparalleled um, in the field ever. Um, there's never been a group targeted at young people. Um, there's never really been want for a lot of young people to be in the field. There's kind of a mixed reaction. Some people think it's fantastic. Um, others think that, uh, we're inexperienced and we don't know what we're talking about, um, at all. Um, but the way I look at it is if you can back yourself up with research and if you stay objective and you look at these things from every perspective, I don't see why it matters as much if you've been doing this five or so years like myself or, uh, 50 or so years like, um, quite a few researchers today. 
Yeah. And here's the hint. It doesn't. Exactly. Like that That's exactly what you should be doing. And you, this kind of stuff, you don't spring fully formed from the head of Zeus in cryptozoology. <laughs> so keep doing what you're doing. I'm definitely in the, the former camp on that. I think it's fantastic. And I think uh, you're doing a great job. Uh, tell everybody, you know, where they can go to uh, to hear more uh, from you and, and anything else you want to plug before we head out. Yes. Yeah, so I do actually have a couple things. Uh, first, I have a blog where which I neglect, unfortunately, and I try to post more things. Um, I try to post at least once a month and I think I do accomplish that. Um, and it's all uh, about all kinds of stuff, not just cryptozoology, um, just my thoughts and some of the things I stumble upon. Uh, fun stuff. And you can find that at uh, paranorm101.blogspot.com. Um, also, listen into my radio show um, online every Monday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at uh, wcjvradio.com. And uh, finally, you can find the Center for Fortean Zoology at uh, cfz.co.uk. And I'm going to be doing a conference uh, in February in Twinsburg, Ohio, I think on the 16th or 17th, I can't remember which was the Saturday, um, where I'll actually be giving the exact same talk that I gave at Mothman Festival and that I've been talking about um, on the show. So um, you can find that at twinsburgparacon.com, I think it is. If you Google Twinsburg Paranormal Conference, it should be the first thing that comes up. Cool. Well, Colin, uh, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. And I, I like seriously, you're you're doing such great work. And I know from your lecture, from watching your lecture, all this information, all this stuff, you're you're pulling it out the top of your head here. And <laughs> this is, I mean, it's it's really impressive. And uh, I congratulate you on everything you've accomplished. And I can't wait to see what else you do. And I appreciate you coming on to talk to us tonight. Certainly. I had a wonderful time. It's not very often that I get to talk about some of the nitty gritty uh, science of these things. Um, so it was great that I got to talk about that. Thank you, of course, for having me on. Uh, I got to check that off the box uh, <laughs> because I've been wanting to come on the show for a while. So I'm very happy that I've gotten to. Thank you. Awesome. You're, you're very welcome. And uh, I look forward to uh, your book and when it comes out and we'll get you on again when, uh, when that happens. That'll be excellent. Thank you. Many thanks once again to Colin for coming on and talking to me. Had a great time talking to him. Make sure you go check out his stuff. He is staying busy. So there's plenty there for you to find. Once again, don't forget to go to Facebook and like our page. Follow us on Twitter at blurry underscore photos. Give us five stars on iTunes and Apple Podcasts. Get yourself a free audiobook from audibletrial.com slash blurry photos. It's a 30-day trial membership. No strings attached. You get a free book. We get a monetary high five. You don't like it. You don't have to keep it. Cancel anytime. But if you listen to podcasts, you'll probably like audiobooks. <laughs> Thanks to our friends over at Dark Myths. You can check out more great shows like ours at darkmyths.org. I hope you had a very unmerry Krampus knocked and have plenty of ice packs for all those welts on your bums from birch branches. Anyways, that'll do it for this episode of Blurry Photos. I have been David, the Lone Wolf Flora. Meh. <laughs> <laughs>